Mr. Lex, we're back. What's up, man? Another episode of the Live Free Podcast. How are you, my friend? It's good to have you back in the womb chair. We yeah, missed yeah. you last week. I know. Um, I just had a crazy two weeks, um, but everything's kind of leveling out. We're going to yeah. get our schedule changed. And uh, so it would work like, I think today, Friday is a better day for us. Yeah. Anyways. Get all our shit together. You know, I've been thinking it was like so much about like keep like improve like evolving the podcast. Mm-hmm. Like I really want to do a video element when uh, not in in that we record our podcast like and play the video. Yeah, yeah. But rather like we make like little TV episodes. Okay. Like little web episodes of instead of like we could still do our interviews. Uh huh. But then have like you know, interactions with artists in their environments on video to put oh, out. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'd really like to start doing like a something second like that. component. Yeah, a multimedia component, mm-hmm. you know? It seems like it would make sense. Just go co- get somebody. Like, I have a bunch of friends who do rad video work. Nice. It would make sense. I think we just need, a, need like, three GoPros or something. <laughs> just, right? And I know. <laughs> that probably would be the easiest thing, and then just edit it down. Yeah. All right, let's do that. The Should, only, the we only just thing we have to worry about is starting the camera th- at the same time. So yeah, we can match up with there's the tricks. I'm sure. Hard. All right. So we got uh, Amir Fala on the show today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I've known his name for a long time, but I just recently became familiar with his artwork. Okay. Uh, we'll get into that. It's a rad painter. Yeah, um, yeah. He's also an art magazine publisher. Uh, does things in the art media. Which is sort of what we're doing here, and there's a funny sort of uh, connection. Yeah, well, you know, there's this like this uh, this fight between getting stuck being art media and being forgotten about as an artist, okay. and being an artist and leaving the other art media behind. So, like, one can over overwhelm the other sometimes. Okay. So I want to talk to him about that a little bit. Um, Let's see what's been going on. Your week's good. Uh, Facebook has been doing the Facebook <laughs> movies. I, it's finally dying out, but especially by the time this comes out, it'll yeah, probably yeah. be completely it'll be dead. dead. Uh, remember when vampire movies were all the shit? I'm oh, so God. glad the vampire trend has died. But so this new trend is Facebook is movies. The Facebook movie. The the new did meme. Did you see yours? I did watch mine. It was super boring. It was basically <laughs> it was funny. It was all jujitsu, art, art, art. Art, 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 art. <laughs> it was like okay, big deal. You know the people who really were who really liked it were the people who have kids, who's yeah, who and you know kids change so much from a baby to five, yeah, and that's usually about. But I don't think he can explain or show the changes like that in like what is it ten pictures they use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh huh. I was, I I looked at mine and I was like, what the hell? I was like, that's it. Yeah, I was the same way. There's no pictures of my dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you, Facebook. Yeah, fuck Facebook. I I don't think... I think Pete... No, I I had a recent photo of Pete showed up in mine. Um, But yeah, it seemed really boring. And I think I I told somebody that they they should watch them on mute because they... Like, all the women... They're like, I'm crying. I'm crying. Ah. Just... Hit mute. It's that weird. It's weird how music can make us all weird and sentimental. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that. 
internet memes are super fucking weird and i love challenging them even though like i don't care it's funny and people mistake what i say like when i'm being like facetious <laughs> on the internet like that i'm being mean and i swear it has something to do with my my icon my like angry face icon tough the guy wife shit. beater yeah so dumb you might need to change it so, i don't want to though might- i don't care <laughs> You, know? <laughs> you need to take a picture of the lollipop holding up your peace sign. I know. Well, the way I look right now, I look like a goddamn cartoon character. It'd be like <laughs> yeah. it's the exact opposite Jimmy of Mr. Neutron Tough hair. Guy. Yeah. So uh, let's give Amir. Actually, Amir is going to give us a call. Uh, yeah, he's in control. Let's see here. All right. We're going to tell him to call us. Skype can be weird sometimes. Yeah. I mean, look. Who's trying to complain? All right. Okay. Here we go. Here's Amir. Amir Fala. Hey, how's it going? What's up, my friend? How are you? Good, good. How you doing? Good. It's uh, it's nice to to get a chance to talk to you. Um, you know, I've known your name for a long time, but have only just recently become familiar with the artwork that you're doing, mm-hmm. which yeah. is something I'd like to talk to you about uh, as we get along. Sure. But um. First of all, thank you for, for taking the time to talk with us. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Um, you grew up in Iran? or you, you, you were born in Iran, right, and moved to the United States? Yeah, I mean, I, I left when I was like four or five years old. Do you still so... have a recollection? I, I try to think about like where I, if I can remember before four, and there isn't much. Do you have recollections of... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember certain like vague things. I was telling a, a buddy of mine the other day, uh, that one of, one of the main memories I have from living in Iran was, uh, I remember during the Iran Iraq war, that's when I lived there. And I remember one time we had to get out of our, we lived in an apartment complex and we had to get out and all the people in the complex had to get out during like an air raid because there was all these, uh, Iraqi planes, like they weren't bombing Tehran, but I don't know. There was some sort of danger, you know, yeah. like because uh, we lived right in the middle of the city. They weren't really attacking the city, but there was enough danger that we had to like get out of the buildings. And there was like air sirens. And I remember I was like a little kid, so I had a little toy gun, and I pretend to like shoot the planes in the yeah. sky. So I that's do... one of the one of the memories I have. Uh, where my gym is, I train right near uh, the marine base here. And I right. think about this a lot, like, because I hear the jets fly over, like, the F-16s or whatever, like, the fighter jets, like, literally right. are right overhead, like, not not very high above uh, all the businesses and stuff. And I think right. about, like, how my reaction to that is so much different from somebody who's living in the Middle East or, like, a war-torn nation anywhere in the world. Like, when right. they hear that sound, that's, like, <laughs> imminent death or, like, like a, a severe threat. Whereas mine, I'm like, these goddamn jets are making my ears hurt, and I'm pissed that they're making right. my dog's ears hurt. You know, well, like, you know, the, one of my mom, one of the, another like early memory I have is like the first year we moved to uh, America. We, uh, I grew up in Virginia, right outside of D.C. So in D.C., there's a huge Fourth of July celebration. It's like probably the biggest one in the country. Yeah, and uh, so we went out there for it. We had, I had an uncle that lived there. And we went there and, you know, the fireworks were going off and there's millions of people watching it. It was a beautiful night. But I remember my mom was like crying and I was like, why are you crying? And she was like, you know, here they're celebrating 
explosion where back homes there's like actual explosions and you know like the american government was like funding the iraq iraqi army back then to right. fight iran which so at the time was, you know we were right in in saddam hussein's pocket who later became enemy number one right yeah exactly Hilarious. so uh so yeah that was also like a funny juxtaposition where everybody's around you is like super happy and like for my not so much for me but for my parents it, it was like it took a couple of years to get used to fourth of july yeah. you know and you know that also shows that sort of post-traumatic stress syndrome that happens for anybody in a place of high stress at, at all times. And, right. you know, you, we can even say, say like in the inner city, Los Angeles, you know, like particularly like the gang wars of the eighties and nineties, you know, right. those same stresses existed for a lot of people in those, in those yeah. neighborhoods. And it's funny, like how we connect to something like sound. We were just talking about how all the Facebook movies were making everybody cry because of the music that was attached <laughs> to it. And that's the same thing, like an attachment to a sound that really has a, a distinctively different meaning to one person than it does to like somebody celebrating right. on 4th of July. It's interesting. So, and you know, even stranger, like it sucks that like these young memories tend to be attached to like high stress moments right. like in that. I mean, I had, I had lots of good memories. Sure, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. But this one was like, you know, this was like a really like poignant one, you know, where it's like. You're a kid. I'm pretending to shoot down the planes. You know, like many years later, uh, you know, in college, I made a I made an art piece about it. But you know, it was just one of those like surreal moments where I I couldn't really comprehend what was happening. Yeah. And I'm so detached from that kind of stuff now. You know, I live in a very comfortable setting. Yeah. But that was a reality. I lived in a place. I wasn't living on the front lines, but I was living in a place where there was actual war. Like. 50 miles away, 100 miles away, where here it's like 10,000 miles away. There's Some of our soldiers are getting killed, but we're killing a lot more, and you know we're really detached from it. That's an interesting point, too, because it's been so long since war has been fought on this, on this land that there is a severe de- detachment from particularly the hyper-pro-war segment of the country, who really yeah. has, like... Like the people who are pro-war that have no real connection to what the realities of war are like. They just see it as like the yellow ribbon around the tree or, you know, like what Fox News or, or any news source in general tells them. Like the, the really watered down version of, of the reality of people killing one another. You know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's scary. But so, so you, you get to the United States, you moved. Did, did your <clears throat> folks leave iran with a purpose uh well they pretty much i was born during the revolution during the iranian revolution so they just didn't want to want me to like grow up in a country that was like controlled by religious rulers that was in war you know like by the time you turn 14 15 you have to enlist in the military there right it's it's kind of like how it's set up in israel where everybody has to join the military yeah or you have to like buy yourself out so they just didn't want me to grow up in that kind of environment. So that's why I mean, we were very happy. We were upper middle class in Iran. We lived a very comfortable. I mean, you know, like people have a lot of misconceptions about Iran, but it's uh, it's pretty it's a pretty developed nation because of uh, like a lot of the incentives of the Shah put in place uh, in the sixties and seventies. It was it was very uh, like the city I lived in was very metropolitan. My parents had this huge penthouse apartment. 
had a couple of cars. My mom worked for the government. We were a very comfortable lifestyle. You know, um, there's really no reason to leave other than the government. Yeah, and in that that came from a transitional government, right? So in in that revolution period, a clear yeah. a clear shift to a more uh, conservative, religious conservative type of yeah. environment. Yeah. Pretty much what happened was, you know, this guy Khomeini, he came in and said, the Shah is corrupt. I'm going to fix the corruption and we're going to have a real democracy. Once he, became, once he came into power, he was like, it was like a slow decline. He tricked the entire country because the Shah wasn't a good guy either. He was a piece of shit too. Right. But once Khomeini came in, he was like, oh yeah, we're going to have a president. We're going to, it's going to be great. I'm, religion's not going to get involved. And then slowly they started chipping away at people's rights. And next thing you know, you know, like women have to cover their hair. You can't listen to music. Like it was crazy. So, so yeah, he he just kind of tricked. He tricked the people. You know, like my dad, who's a very liberal guy, he was pro Khomeini. He was for the revolution because the Shah was really bad too. He was torturing people. He was like having these lavish parties and spending tens of millions of dollars on foreigners yeah. when his own people were like starving. So he wasn't a good guy either. But uh, it was kind of like you, you traded off one bad thing for something even worse. Which seems to be the sort of nature of politics, regardless yeah. of uh, nation. It just it's the structure of power, I guess. Um, do you do you go back to Iran? I don't, uh, not because I can't. Well, my parents go back and visit family, but uh, honestly, like a part of me wants to go and a part of me doesn't. I just don't want to go there and have a bad experience. Yeah. And have like a bad I don't have a negative memory of living there. And I kinda don't want to taint that taint that memory sure. by going there and being depressed about like how people are oppressed there. You know, it's like a it's a shitty situation. I just I don't want to be I don't want to go there yeah. because of that. I have a lot of family, you know. Um yeah, I mean I'd like to go one day, but just not the way it is now. Yeah. You know. It, I'm sure it'll it'll happen when the right time Comes. Yeah, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah. So, what what was the precipice for getting involved in art? I know you talked about uh, getting interested in skateboarding and graffiti and uh, zine yeah. making. Is it so? You know, I I I heard you talk about. It. I've been on the podcast. I really romanticize uh, the late '90s and early 2000s, right? And the sort of art movement and like the pre-internet uh search for things and I, right. I really over romanticize it to a to a fault almost but i feel like there's this generation of people who all learn something or like gain something from that time period and it seems like you sort of had the same experiences right well you know like i think it all for me everything started with skateboarding the first apartment complex we lived in when we moved to America, I had a next-door neighbor. I don't remember his name, but he was into skateboarding. He was like two years older than me. Sure. And so I thought he was really cool, and he had a skateboard. And it was right around the time like uh, that movie Thrashing had come out. Uh-huh. And so I watched that movie, and I was like, man, this shit's sick. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I bought a uh, – my parents bought me a little Nash skateboard. And I just started trying to do like crazy power slides and I'd like, I bought some like crazy like vert gloves, you know, from the local <laughs> skate shop. I was like, you know, like putting duct tape on the fingers and like sliding on the ground. You know, I just got really into it. And 
pretty much that kind of changed. I think being introduced to that accidentally changed the course of my entire life. Like otherwise I could have probably turned into like an accountant or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Do you um, feel like your eyes opened up to like a different type of world? You know, like we see this particularly with graffiti, uh, how and in, in, in skateboarding in particular, how you recognize your environment in a different context. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think it, it introduced me to this uh, back then skateboarding was very underground so it introduced me to this like really cool niche underground lifestyle. And I and I was the only child, so I was never a big fan of like team sports and stuff like that. Like I don't give a shit about any team sports at all. <laughs> and so skateboarding just made complete sense. It was something that I could do by myself. I didn't have to depend on anybody else. And um, it's a self-reliant sport, you know? And uh, I really got into it. So through that, through skateboarding, I got into you know, I was skating in D.C. Uh, when I was like 12 or 13 uh, at this place called Pulaski Park, which was like a famous skate spot in the early 90s in D.C. And this kid came and asked me if I wrote, and I had no idea what he was talking about. And little did I know he was talking about graffiti. And we went around and we stuck some stickers around town. And uh, I just thought it was kind of cool. I had no interest in art whatsoever. Yeah. And then one year... Uh, I kept getting more and more into graffiti and then I think right around like 7th or 8th grade I took this art class and they had this like mural painting competition and uh, I was like oh that's cool I could like kind of try to do some graffiti stuff so like I, I think I like drew this like little character like doing a kickflip over something <laughs> right. I mean it was horrible you know um, so I mean that's how I got into art so I started taking art classes to get better at graffiti and somewhere along the lines, I was like, hey, this art stuff's really interesting. And um, so I feel like, I, I mean, it's maybe it's changing a little bit more now, but I think it's fairly unique for people to be interested in kind of in like contemporary fine art and on the graffiti side. Usually it's like, at least with my experience, it's been like they're either into one or the other. Yeah. But I was like, all throughout high school, I was like really serious about like fine art. And then I was really serious about graffiti. And I, was, and I wasn't into street art. I was like into graffiti, like lettering, you know, yeah, right. bombing and murals and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I was just super into it. And then by the time college came around, I had, you know, I was like, I want to go to art school. So it's the only thing I'm interested in. And so all throughout undergrad and also pretty much all the way through getting my master's, I was very actively painting graffiti. And, and then, I, you know, I think that a lot of times it gets uh, maybe second shelf when people don't realize the amount of work that goes into making graffiti besides out on the street. Like, I felt like I get, I got a lot of my ambition from, like, my graffiti writing roommates. Like, the amount right. of work that they would do inside the house while getting prepared to go paint outside. Right. Like showed me like, okay, you, like there's these hours that you need to put in. You can't fuck around and like just go there's outside no and paint some shit. And these, and that's what gets missed by so many people that if they might just see one tag and think it's shitty, they'll be like, oh, that's trash on the street. And they have no idea the amount of hours of working in the black book, the type of painting that's happening. Like I learned so much about painting from my friends who did graffiti, like actually like fine art painting. That, right. that never gets seen by a lot of people. I mean, not now, but at the time wasn't being seen by people. 
right. You know, and, and that gets lost on a, on a lot of people. Like to think that people just work and just go <laughs> just right on the street. Not that there's it that there aren't people that do that, or that there's anything wrong with that, but that. Uh, yeah, it's the, like a, it's it, it really is a way of life. It's very you know. Um, it I mean, creates a me, work ethic. What's that? It creates a work ethic that's different than a lot of yeah. other people. I think. Yeah, because you can't fake it. Like your stuff's either out and around or it's not. You know, and um, and for me back then, I was a very big quantity person. Like I was just like with this race with myself to like just cover everything I could, like all throughout college and. Uh, and it's funny because I was always serious about, like, when I was younger, I was really serious about the art stuff as well. But I really do feel like the, the graffiti side was my main focus and where now it's completely changed. Like, now I feel like I'm catching up with, you know, I always got good grades and I, you know, I was very active at showing and stuff like that. But it just, the graffiti thing just took so much energy and effort that, uh, you know, sometimes I think like, what would I have been? What would I be doing if I wasn't doing graffiti? Would I just be out partying with everybody else, or would I have gotten, you know, just a little bit further along with the art stuff? Yeah, you never know. It's too late. It's already yeah, happened. Okay. <laughs> so you decided to go to art school. Then where'd you go to school at? I went in Baltimore. I went to a school called Micah. So I went there for four years, and. Um, yeah, I mean, that was like a real eye-opener uh, for me. Like, it's a very academic and, like, kind of conservative school. Um, but I wasn't interested in any anything, like, any kind of traditional painting techniques and stuff like that. So I was kind of – I felt – I always felt like I, I was kind of like the black sheep yeah. of the painting department. Everybody was, like, really into figurative work. And I was, like, doing these kind of, like, graffiti-inspired paintings and um, – and it's funny because, like, back then I was, like, the thought of ever doing a fig- doing artwork that's figurative was hilarious <laughs> to me. I would have, like, been like, yeah, right, that shit's for the birds. Yeah, and, funny. you know, and now that's all, that's exactly what I'm doing, you yeah. know. Um, so, you know. It's Although, like when- let's, we could talk about that. You got, you got a different stance on some of the portraiture. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely influenced by all the other stuff that I did. You know, I think everything leads – to the next thing but it's just funny how it kind of went full circle i'm actually using some of the techniques and things that i learned in my freshman year of college and the work that i'm doing now but there was this like 12 year gap where i didn't pay attention to any of those things yeah that's good man that's how you know like some of that shit is working for you like when you yeah. can dig back into the toolbox and be like oh okay here's that thing right. i feel like i missed out on that by not doing the art school thing like, right. I, I, w- I could only fill my toolbox up with so much stuff without having the the tutelage of, of other people. Although right. I was lucky enough to have, like, artists who were smart enough to give me some information. Yeah. But, but, but not in the sort of academic environment. Um, yeah. You know, like, you know, a lot of people, like, talk shit about art school. And I don't think you have to go to art school. But art school is amazing. Like, you know, like... I know David Cho and he's always talking crap about art school and how it was like a waste of time and stuff like that. And I just, I just think that's so silly, you know, like I love Dave, but I just, I can't, I couldn't disagree with him more. I mean, I think it really, I mean, for me, it was extremely helpful. It really helped me like expand my horizons as far as like what art is and what it could be, you know, and like when I was a freshman in college, I was doing like pieces that were like inspired by Duchamp's new descending a staircase, you know? 
I didn't go to art school, I probably wouldn't have known about that at such an early age, you know, right. but that was influencing my artwork. Um, so and I, 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 everyone who's been on the show uh, tends to, to glorify their, their art school, uh, days and not not in like a over dramatic way but like in no, saying no, that it's, it's helpful and you know like you know what it is it's you're getting exposure to different ways of thinking which which is just like traveling or just meeting people from different cultures you're even if you don't like for instance i'm not really into like minimalism but i respect it and i understand a trajectory that led art to that point you know yeah. and why what came after it. And I think it's just like, it's exactly like graffiti. It's like, if you don't understand like New York and Philly graffiti from like the seventies and eighties, you can't appreciate like the FX crew from like the nineties and early two thousand, And you can't have appreciate like what Revoke is doing now. Like you need that history, you know? Yeah. And for me, it's the same thing with art. Like you need all those, like it, nothing happens in a vacuum. And for me, that's what it was. You could totally do it without, you don't need to go to art school, but it just gives you time to think about something that otherwise you probably wouldn't get to think about that much before, you know, in my case, seven years, all I did was think about art, you know, yeah. and it that, gives you a lot of freedom, you know, that's that thing too, that I think that a lot of young people get from skateboarding and graffiti. And, and even, you know, I watched a kid riding his bike down the street the other day, like, you know, probably like a 10, 11 year old little boy like just charging like and i was like he's on a little adventure right now like i don't think about it anymore because i'm all old and grumpy and shit but i'm like yeah that makes sense he's like it's almost as if he had like a cape on he's like he's going to take care of some sort of like young kid business shit like he totally was getting ready for an adventure and we we sort of lose out on that that freedom when we get into adulthood and have schedules and, and deadlines and all that shit well, you know what's funny is uh, I live three blocks away from a skate park, a free skate park, like outdoor, state-of-the-art, beautiful park. And uh, the, one of the main reasons I bought this house, even though I don't really – I have a board, but I never skate. The main reason I bought this house was because there was a skate park down the street. <laughs> and, and sometimes I'll go down there and I'll like walk my dog by it. And I'll be on the verge of tears. I'm so excited, you know, to like – I see all these young kids like skating and I'm like – this is the shit. Yeah. If there was a skate park on, I mean, in the East Coast, they're very rare. In Virginia, we would drive like an hour and a half to go to like a 15 foot vert that none of us could actually skate, and we just like <laughs> pump from side to side, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I, it's for me, it's like so comforting to know that that park is there, and um, I don't know, it just, it just, I just, it resonates with me so heavily even now, even though I haven't really like picked up a board in years, like. There's something about that moment in time that I really like. I guess I romanticize it too. Like I watched yeah. that Bones Brigade documentary, and when Rodney Mullen was talking about skateboarding, I was like, "Yes, this is everything I think about." You know, it's just it really like it just sent chills down my spine. Everyone I know that watched the documentary they were like, "Oh yeah, that was incredible." Yeah, Rodney Mullen, like he was just so articulate about how he felt about skateboarding and how it was like this like. I mean, that guy's a fucking artist, you know? Like, he's not just, like, an athlete. That's what it is. And there's a, a, a high level of creativity that's... that. And, you know, I I, I was going to try to compare it to other sports, but the reality is is that all all <clears throat> technical sports have a level of creativity for the people yeah, who are doing course, it well, yeah. right? And, and that, I think, I think that is a, a good stepping stone or a gateway drug, if we will, 
to a creative lifestyle. Like, like realize, like creating something on your own. That's probably, that's different than like you had a school project to, to make a, a log cabin drawing or, you know, whatever the fuck it is, you know, there's something different when you decide to do something on your own and then understand and recognize the reward system from it. Are you, uh, do you find that you're, um, do you have, are you compulsive kind of? Not, not compulsive, uh, sort of like, uh, like, do you find that you get attached to things and like really try to figure them all the way out to, to the nth degree? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I don't have many hobbies. If I do something, it's like I'm married to it. It's my life. I'm a hundred percent in. Yeah. I don't like, so when I did graffiti, I did a shitload of graffiti, yeah. you know, um, it, it like, it was all encompassing. I spent my 21st birthday in a freight yard, you know, like I, <laughs> uh, like that was my birthday party, you know? Um, I don't, yeah, I don't like, to, I don't like to, I don't want to say I don't like to half-ass cause it doesn't necessarily mean I'm good or bad, but, um, yeah, I'm a hundred percent in. So I don't like to get into too many things. Yeah. Because I can't just have like a weekend hobby, you know, like, like my, my wife and I, we got into scuba diving recently and uh, got certified and it drives me crazy that I can't do it like every weekend. <laughs> like I only, I, I only do it a couple of times a week, but I just feel like I feel guilty for like neglecting this thing that I, that I really like. Yeah. I'm so, the same way with jujitsu. I'm to a point now where like, if I don't go every day, like I feel like I, I'm like, cheating or doing something wrong right yeah it's crazy yeah. and that that's how, and that's how i feel about i think that's how i feel about art now it's like for me it's like the daily practice of painting i'm i'm in my studio every day seven days a week for at least a couple of hours like no matter what um that's good uh yeah, so a, a little bit of a preface to that you in 2001 you started a zine uh, which later became Beautiful Decay magazine? No, actually, the zine was started much earlier than that. The black and white zine was started in 1995 or 96. Okay. So, um, so yeah, the zine I started with my next door neighbor. Uh, yeah, pre-internet, right? Pre-internet. It was like right. It was like dial-up, pay by the minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so you get it was the like AOL, AOL CDs. Um, so yeah, me and my my buddy Jay Littleton, he was my next door neighbor and my best friend, and we were both into like skateboarding, graffiti, and we were really into like uh, the DC hardcore scene, the music scene in DC. And so is that where the the zine idea came out? Because yes, zines were yeah. extremely popular in the the hardcore, particularly on the East Coast. Extremely, yeah. I mean, that's that's where I got the idea. I mean, yeah. I was really, um, I I went to a high school where in the suburbs of Virginia where the hardcore, there was a lot of bands coming that came out of my high school and uh, I didn't play any instruments. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't ever in any bands, but all my friends were. And um, so my con- contribution or our contribution was to like make a zine. We were like, we should make a zine, but since we're not really into uh, music, we'll make it about, we'll have a little bit of music, we'll have a little bit of art, we'll have street art, you know, graffiti, just the, we had a real mix of everything, pretty much everything that I was interested in. Which street was art wasn't even like a name yet in 95. Well, I, I will tell you, we probably wrote the first article about street art ever. How crazy uh, is it to see now? It, it, it wasn't called, and I have copies of it, I can send you, because one of my buddies, uh, 
and I've actually never talked about this publicly, but I want to give this guy credit. Uh, his name is Matt Dilling, and him and I in high school, Matt was like 15 years ahead of everybody. Like when people were doing figure drawings, this guy was doing like conceptual, like text-based art in, in high school. Yeah, I mean, he was he was a real forward thinker. Um, and he got into like gorilla art. I don't even know how. I think he got it in. He got into it through like Barbara Kruger and through the fine art world. Mm-hmm. So we actually went into the Hirschhorn Museum and we installed a, a piece into Hirschhorn. We have photos of it. It was like googly eye glasses, uh-huh. and we put it on a placard and we mimicked the plaque that had like all the museum. Pretty much exactly what Banksy did, yeah. but like ten or fifteen years before him. Oh shit! And, exclusive. Uh, oh, damn. That's the exclusive. That's. I mean, <laughs> I, I we have the photos, man. It's it's crazy, That's but rad. we just. It was Matt's idea. I just kind of went along because he knew I was into graffiti. Yeah. So he's like, "Oh, you like to get in trouble? Let's go get in trouble." So it was totally. I give him full credit. But yeah, we went and installed it at Hirschhorn, and we took photos of people looking at like almost identical to what Banksy did. Did you? Um, did you we also, were you aware of Human Five back then? Canadian no. street I, art I know group. who they are, but no, no. Dude. This was way before I had ever heard of them. They were killing it back. Well, I guess it was probably closer to like 97, 98. Yeah, this this was probably between the years of 94, maybe 95 to 96. And so were, I, you, were you running them all at, at Kinko's? Did you have any good Kinko scams? Have you heard any of my Kinko scams on the podcast? Um, God, you know, I don't think... I, I didn't have any Kinko scams, but I think we might have had some friends that worked at Kinko's. Yeah. Um, oh, so anyway, sorry, just to backtrack a little bit, yeah. get back to Matt Dilling. Matt Dilling in the first black and white zine issue of Beautiful Decay, he wrote a, he had done this poster that he mounted on the outside of the uh, the National, uh, what is it, the National Gallery in D.C. Uh-huh. They had like a construction wall, and we went and drilled this like, we pasted po- series of portraits on the outside, and then he wrote this whole like article about the pro- project. And that that article is in the first issue of Beautiful Decay, the Zine. Uh-huh. So that's what I meant about street art. We didn't call it street; the, the term didn't exist. Yeah. But uh, uh, there was that. So yeah, so we made like I think Jay and I made like a hundred copies of the first issue, and we sold them for a dollar each. They cost like. 75 cents to print you know right we sold them in a couple of stores i I bought a p.o box and um and we did three black and three or four black and white issues in high school and then we just kind of forgot about it because like nobody gave a shit about it It (laughs) sure you know it was just some shitty zine from the suburbs you know and was it focused on like editorial was it uh focused on imagery did it have a obviously (laughs) I had a lot of like real strong opinion. I'm a very opinionated person. <laughs> and so like, yeah, so I had some guest writers. So my friend Matt wrote that article about his piece. Uh, we had an article that my buddy Joseph wrote uh, about San Francisco graffiti because uh, he lived in San Francisco for a while. I interviewed one of uh, DC's like most notorious bombers while he was in dr- prison nice. for, on gun charges. I actually like wrote it, interviewed him via mail. And like we were so naive, Jay, Jay and I tried to visit him in uh, in jail, yeah. and we had no idea that we didn't know that you couldn't just show up and like go see somebody. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the prison guards were like, these kids are like crazy. We were 15, 16 years old, so we just went to Lorton Prison, 
and which is a maximum security prison. We were like, yeah, we're here to see, you know, so-and-so. And they were like, you have to be on a list. <laughs> Did you even get in the gates? Yeah, I mean, we got into the visiting area. Yeah. I mean, we were so stupid, you know? But anyway, so yeah, so we have this article with this guy, and it's, it's called, like, Cast from Lockdown, Interview from Lockdown, and it was like, this, you know, it was goofy stuff like that. I wrote an article about Karis one and not about like real underground hip hop. It was just, it was pretty stupid. Were were you taking yourself pretty seriously at the time too? Did you have in terms of like did you did you see yourself as becoming a journalist? No, no, no. not that. It was not, like it was like a punk scene, you know. Like yeah. I was I was really into like the hardcore scene, and um, I just felt you know I was an like angsty teen, and I felt like I had something to say and. So I said it, you know, and yeah. uh, and actually, you know, to tell you, to like kind of illustrate how not serious of an endeavor it was, we act, I actually didn't have any copies of the black and white versions until about 2004, 2005, when one of my friends found them under his like childhood bed, like stuffed in a drawer. And he called me and he's like, guess what? You won't believe what I found. And he and he mailed them to me, so yeah. I have three of the actual original copies. Um, are you gonna put? Are they like in the archives now? You know. Uh yeah, yeah I mean, they're, they're, in my, they're they're in my archives. I made photocopies of them, you know, just so I could get. I mailed them out to some of my like old friends and stuff, you know. That's I mean, funny. they're really funny. Like the photocopy machine didn't work on uh, on some of the copies, so we would go with a marker or like a pen and like fill in the letters. <laughs> with the sharpie, you could see the sharpie lines. Yeah, there's literally like handwritten <laughs> parts of it. So great. I mean, I miss spending hours in Kinkos on stuff like that. Yeah. It was a lot of I fun. I mean, I mean, you know, it was it was just a dumb thing we did. So then, so then I went to college. I went to Bal- uh, I was in Baltimore, and I did this like exchange program when I was in New York City, and I was interning at Deitch Projects. Okay. Uh, you know Jeffrey Deitch. Yeah, I do. Uh, maybe we should uh, elaborate for people who don't know. Maybe. So Deitch Projects was like the the, ga- the first New York gallery that uh, Barry McGee had his first show at, like big New York show. You know, he's he's very supportive of like you know people that have become street artists, pop art, things like that. Very and powerful. He, he was running the uh, LA Museums program for a while. Mocha, yeah. yeah, he was running the Mocha. Now he's back in New York. So a teacher of mine at this uh, exchange program, she was like. Oh, you're you like uh you you're into graffiti, you should go intern at Deutsch Projects. And I knew the gallery and I like loved it. So I interned there for about eight months. And my studio was in Tribeca, it was in Manhattan, and uh my my shitty apartment was in Brooklyn. And so every night, late night, I would like buy a magazine. So I would buy like a juxtapose or like an art form or an art in America. And during a commute I would like read these magazines and I felt like I felt like none of them really spoke to my interests, you know, like art form was way too academic and like, just like lots of theory based writing. It felt like homework reading it. It wasn't a pleasure. And then juxtapose was like the other extreme. It was like, back then it was like very big on hot rod and tattoo art and things like that. It it wasn't even now it's broadened up quite a bit. Um, but it wasn't like that back then. And it just, it was a little too underground for me because remember I was like, I had my feet in these two different worlds. I was really into graffiti and then I was really into fine art and I wanted something that was like accessible, like juxtaposed, but informed like art form. So I was like, Oh, I should make a zine. I should make beautiful decay again. 
So that was the idea. There was no business plan. There was no like, I want to be a journalist. I was like, I want to make a, ma- a little magazine that me and my friends uh, want to read. You so know what, uh, what drew me into the magazine was the rounded edges. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we did that like, I mean, we did that several years into it. And it was like yeah. a fluke, you know, like my, I asked my printer like, oh, what, is there anything cool we can do for like a couple of hundred bucks extra? And he's like, oh, we could make it like a composition book. And we, we did that. And that to today, that is the most popular thing we've ever done. And apparently to our distributor back then, he was like, no other magazine has ever done this which I found really bizarre because it's a pretty basic technique. Yeah, right. But uh, so that became kind of like our signature thing, like down the line. It seemed uh, like, didn't you, you guys did some different stuff with covers too, like some like embossed things, some stuff that wasn't happening at the uh, time. Well, well, the second issue of the color version of Beautiful Bouquet, the ones that I started in 2001, uh, every cover was unique. And what I did was I put a call out to my friends and people on the internet and I asked artists, record labels, independent clothing lines to send me stickers. So every issue, uh, I think there was like 2,500 copies made, and all 2,500 covers were unique. So we collaged stickers on them. So every cover had a different uh, cover. And that actually gave us a really big boost. We got a lot of our distribution and stuff like that through that issue. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, And it seemed like you guys were – it felt like a different type of magazine. And that was at the time – you know, I, I guess for me, like hitting Tower Records all the time was like the spot to get all the information. Oh, yeah. That was like before. That's how we made all our money. Yeah. Yeah. Tower Record distribute. Once we got that, we actually started making enough money because before that, I was throwing warehouse parties to fund <laughs> the first like three issues. Well, and you also, you know, in this span of time have seen the sort of birth of, of uh, do-it-yourself printed media and also what we see as the death of printed media to a certain extent in terms of how we digest content these days and the immediacy of uh you know the internet yeah it's definitely it's definitely changed i mean back then it took me i don't know like nine months just to figure out how to get a barcode because you couldn't (laughs) google it google didn't exist you know, there was no internet search for how to create barcode i wouldn't know where to get a barcode right now without you're, you're one you're one Google search away from it. <laughs> from but anything. Back, but back then, it took me almost a year to do it. And finally, I just gave up. And I called these guys who were from Virginia, uh, this guy Pat, who ran uh, Mass Appeal magazine. Uh-huh. And they were actually from Virginia. I, I knew them because they were graffiti writers uh, from Virginia. Uh, and we were kind of like in the same. They were older than me, but we knew, we knew of each other. Uh, so I called them up and I was like, Dude, how do I get a barcode? And you know, he he was nice enough to, you know, pass on the information. Uh, but that was the only way, you know. Like I, that's how I figured out distribution, advertising. I mean, I, I went to art school. I had no business degrees. Um, and that's you a, know, that's such a big change now in something that we're seeing. Uh, I think big cultural shifts, big evolutionary shifts, is the capability to find information and not only just find information, but to be able to utilize it. Like my right. wife cut my hair. She never cut hair before, even though my hair looks crazy silly right now <laughs> on the internet. But 
you know, she was able to just get enough information to be able to do something. Like I could, you know, probably fix anything in the house by finding, by just typing <coughs> Google. Whereas oh, yeah. before you had to go and search out these mentors to a certain extent, you know, like the kid who showed you about skateboarding or about graffiti, the same things have happened for everybody else generationally up until, you know, we get our information from the machine interface. Not in a, a clearly, it's obviously a benefit. You know, you could do a lot. Right. I, I, I almost sound negative saying it, right? Mm -hmm. But it's that glorification of what it took before that gives it, it almost seems like there's more of a respect for the information. Right. I think, yeah, also, I mean, oh, go ahead. I, I also feel like the internet kind of destroyed all subcultures. Like, I don't feel like there's any subcultures anymore. There's no such thing, you know, yeah. like Let's, what's a what, subculture. What could we, what could be a subculture? I think almost now subcultures have to be defined by oppression, by the work you have to put into it too. It seems like there has to be some sort of, uh, villain to go against for there to be subculture. But I mean like for instance, okay. So like back then I was really into like the hardcore and punk subculture. I was really into like, you know, like there's a huge hardcore scene in, in DC. That was that was like a legitimate subculture. And there's the graffiti subculture, and all these things. You had to have someone that introduced you, like you were saying. Yeah. You know, you had to like learn the ropes. You know, like at a hardcore show, you had to learn how to dance at the show. You know, you had to know what to do. You had to find out like why is there a bunch of Hare Krishnas serving vegetarian food at this thing? <laughs> you know, like there was all sorts of like these weird things that. Nobody else knew about it, and it was like your thing. It was like your secret thing. Or with graffiti, you got to trade photos. I had pen pals all over the, all over the world. I was trading yeah. photos with people all over the world that I'd never met, you know? Um, and it was this, like, beautiful, special thing that it was, like, mine, you know? And me and my small group of friends. And it was, like, this thing that, you know, we could, like, say it's art. But, like, what's subculture now? Like, is EDM a, a subculture? It's like, no, you go to fucking, you do a Google search, you know, you find a couple of fucking DJs and you're done. Oh, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, you get your asymmetrical haircut, and, you know, that's it. Right. So, you know, it's, there's no, there's no, I know, I was no, trying like, barriers for entry. I was going to say like jujitsu or like certain martial arts have it, but then even within those subcultures, the subculture itself has died because of, again, the internet. So, like, in jiu-jitsu moves used to be like a certain school would have a certain set of knowledge that the that would be passed along to the students now as soon as a move becomes invented it's on the internet and everybody like even beginners are learning this stuff right away and it loses some of that sort of magic i guess on right. some level but i'd like the equality of the playing field in terms of what we've seen as in you know our ancient past where knowledge and intelligence has been uh, uh, set aside for the wealthy, set aside for a particular grouping of people in, uh, in a society, typically the wealthy, you know, and the, the availability for the poor on some level to be able to obtain an equal playing field in terms of knowledge, although there's plenty of, of things that get in the way of that, but I, I right. feel like it's a benefit. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, uh, one thing I kind of think about is, like, one of my friends from high school, they had this band called Darkest Hour. They're, like, a 
hardcore metal band, you know, and they're, they're fairly popular still. They've been around since the late nineties. I mean, these guys started on the ground, you know, like they had nothing, they had a shitty van, they toured the country for endless times. And now they're like, they make a live, they make their full-time living off playing music. They play Ozfest sometimes, you know, like they're fairly known in that community. Yeah. But we're talking about like 15 years of like blood, sweat and tears. Yeah. Right. These guys put in work in that subculture to become famous, you know, yeah. by like grinding, you know, where, you know, like my a couple of years ago, my next door neighbor, this guy, Sonny, you know, he's a cool guy. He's a musician. And we start talking and he's like, oh, I'm going on tour. I'm going to go DJ in some places. I'm like, oh, cool, man. I'll see, see you around, you know, comes back a couple of months later. Oh, man, I'm going to Europe and touring. I was like, wow, again, like you're going traveling all over the world. And every time I see him, he's like, oh, man, my tour just got extended. Next thing I know, he's on the cover of Spin Magazine. <laughs> so strange. And, you know, and he's that, he's that guy Skrillex. Yeah. This happened in a year. He went from being literally unknown to being the most popular electronic music DJ in the world. Yeah. Well, that's what we were talking about, memes, how quickly yeah. memes spread. It's insane. And I mean, he's a talented guy, and he's a nice guy. I love him to death. But he went literally from being my next door neighbor to winning like six Grammys, and within a span of of one year, it's it was unreal, you yeah, know. Yeah. And good for good for him, but that would have never happened before, unless you were like signed to a major label, you were like a chosen one. But he did it himself, virally, just the internet, you know. Yeah. It's incredible. It's I I likened it to a virus now, like yeah, the way information. It's almost as if it has its own sort of sense of life in the way that it attaches to hosts and then transfers to other hosts continually and, right. and multiplies. Like it's very strange to see the cultural <laughs> memes that exist in the sort of social media biosphere of some sort. Right. <laughs> so um, your paintings are super rad. We haven't really got to talk about the actual art that you make that much. Um, I noticed we, we talked about that you're now making a lot of figurative work, uh, you make portraiture that uh, sort of eliminates what is often looked at as the sort of uh, natural way people would do portraiture, like in terms of details and stuff, which is something right. that I find really interesting and something that I've been sort of <coughs> confronting myself in uh, being so attached to details and making people look like what people look like that I, I think for viewers there's something in portraiture that they need to have the ability to think that that possibly could be them in some uh, on some level i don't know if you if you have the same experience but so a lot of your figurative work is um made up of people who are covered you you get a, only a very small sense of the actual figure and it's something that i find interesting in terms of uh you know, painting makes the viewer's eyes kind of build the piece and use a lot of what would be, um, I guess you could say silhouetted to a certain extent, but with, with patterning and, and, uh, lots of, uh, sort of design and, and, and objects and, and, and even abstraction within it as well. Um, do you, and you're one of these guys that I don't think I could probably sort of pigeonhole into describing besides what I just described, like how, you right. know, like some people you could easily put them into a, a particular grouping, which us humans always like to do. Not that it's necessary, right. but 
Um, maybe you could talk about the, the figurative work. I feel like there's a sense of uh, maybe some cultural heritage that shows up, even though like I get a feeling of a Middle Eastern culture, but in a very westernized environment in terms of the objects that show up in your work. Uh, is that something you put in there on purpose? Uh, yeah, well, you know, um, well, let me just describe what they are. So pretty sure. much the, 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 these new figurative paintings I'm doing, um, there's several steps to them. So what I do is I'll go, like, for instance, let's say if I was going to paint you, uh, I would come to your home and we would <clears throat> create a sort of still life of your, of your possessions. So what I'm looking for are not necessarily like luxury items or items that show you like your stature, uh-huh. but I'm looking for like everyday mundane things that you live with, things that have some sort of sentimental or emotional attachment to you. So like we would maybe, for sure have the womb chair. We have a Lex sits in the womb chair. It's like a, it looks uh-huh. like a half a womb. Right. That would for okay, sure be so, in there. The womb chair. Yeah. So like, or maybe, maybe something like your parents gave you that has a lot of like that you've, it's nothing valuable, but you just can't throw away. Cause yeah. like every time you look at it, it gives you a certain feeling. And then also like just things that you just have lying around, maybe the cushions on your couch, maybe the blanket that you sleep on every night. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking for like the debris of life, you know, like just the things that we all have in our homes that we don't think twice about. So I'll create the still life with these objects and possessions. And then I'll put you, you know, the, the subject kind of in the center. And I always drape the figure with your belongings. So like maybe your bed sheets or like your rug, your carpet, some sort of fabric usually. And what I'm trying to do is, I want to paint a portrait of someone without showing any of like the superficial signifiers of who they are. So I don't want to show whether they're a man or a woman, if they're young or old, if they're black or white. Um, I try to strip away as much information as possible while still retaining the structure of a person. So usually only like hands and feet and like maybe like arm or like a bicep is showing. Do you notice notice some of those things still come out? Even when uh, they're, they're, your goal is to sort of hide some of those things, do you still notice like feminine and masculine or like cultural uh, relics that make sense that kind of do give a little bit of the story? Yes and no. Like uh, I, I recently had a show and people were like trying to guess who it was in every <laughs> yeah. painting. And I'd say it was like 50-50. Some people knew right away and some people were like completely – like. Uh, were completely wrong about yeah. everything, you know? which is great uh, too. Yeah, I mean, I, they're not supposed. It's not supposed to be a one-to-one translation. Like, I have no interest in just like depicting someone as who they are because I don't come from like a portraiture background. I come from more of an abstraction pack background. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really trying to deconstruct the human body as much as possible and the idea of what a por- portrait is. Like, who are you really, and like what describes you? You know, is your house plant that you barely keep alive that's like kind of like it's got like you know like dried leaves but it's like clinging on to life does that say something about who you are or does like the fact that you have like brown hair and brown eyes or you know you have a small nose or a big nose yeah 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 sure you know do those things describe who you are so i'm trying to i'm trying to get at this like more real representation of who the people are but it's it's a complete fallacy because when I come and set up the still life, I take a photograph of you, right? Then I bring that photograph back to my, back home, 
uh, to the studio and I altered a photo quite a bit. So I'll, I cut out the background. If I don't like a color of something, I'll change it. I'll make sometimes like I, I did a painting recently where there was like a small figurine of like a lion. And I, in the painting, I blew it up to like five feet tall. <laughs> yeah. So it went from being this like tiny little like paperweight to being this like life-size, you know, sculpture. So it's like these people's realities, but completely filtered through my wants and needs and desires to make a good painting. Sure. And in to make uh, objects that are pleasing to you, right? Like it's sometimes it's weird, like uh, the ca- the the figurine needed to be bigger to make sense in terms of like... Yeah, well, it needed to make sense for the painting. Like so conceptually, I was trying to like... Uh, I was trying to like make it, it was a figurine of a lion and in the painting, the, the person is sitting down and it kind of looks like a fireside chat kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it would be interesting. Like, you know, you see those like old European paintings of like, like their portraits of guys like next to a fire yeah. and they have this, they're like Doberman Pinscher sitting next to them, you know, like kind of like guarding them. Yeah. I kind of wanted to kind of like allude to that, but the subject was also Iranian and he left Iran during the Shah era, and the Shah's symbol was the lion. So it related to that, yeah. but it also related to like European like gargoyles or those lions that people put at the gate of their homes. Because uh-huh. the the guy he lives in Germany now, so there's that tradition there. So there's all these like symbolic connections that I'm trying to make, right. which the viewer will never pick up on. But for me, that's what makes the painting. You know, yeah. it's kind of like this coded uh, narrative that. You're not really supposed to decode ever. And that's the thought process that a lot of artists go through on a regular basis to come up with uh, imagery that, that, although to a lot of people might not make sense, but there could be metaphors that could go far down the line that really are only pleasing to the artists themselves, which is hilarious to me. Like that's, I, I talk about painting being kind of selfish sometimes. Oh, it's super selfish. I think, I think art is completely selfish. For the most part, I mean, you're making stuff for other people to enjoy, but it's almost like you have to enjoy it first <laughs> yeah. or, or yeah. you're not going to. So for me, these paintings, yeah, they're portraits of other people, but they almost have nothing to do with those other people. They're just that those people are a means to an end, you know, like I'm just as much invested in the, the paintings are just as much about me and my wants and desires as they are about that. And that's kind of what the work is about. It's about like, even though I'm trying to get at this like truer sense of like who this person is it's still being filtered through me. And I think that's like a really good metaphor for like history as a whole. Yeah. You know, history is constantly be re- being rewritten and manipulated and changed to suit the writer's needs and wants, you know? Are you sort of making some, some, uh, are you, are you talking about, uh, possessions a bit here? Like in terms of like the, the idea of how we're in a very, possession driven society does that play into like how you utilize people's own objects like we're so interested in having more and more objects as as we no i'm not really i don't think about that because i'm i'm looking for really boring things i mean i'm looking for like house plants and like rugs and pillows and i'm looking for like the things that everybody has so like for instance i did a series of commission portraits recently for a show and so the whole show there were all these commission portraits so uh, I went into the homes of these people who were strangers and they were all art collectors. So, you know, they're all well off, very wealthy. And I specifically avoided anything that could kind of allude to their stature in life. Yeah. You know, uh, as far as like their wealth, 
the only thing that I included in one painting was one of the collectors was a fashion designer and he had this like one of a kind like cheetah print Gucci briefcase that he had won at some auction and he said he like looked all over the world for it and the only reason I put it in there was because he went through this huge pain to get it yeah and he's also a fashion designer so it related to like his passion for fashion not to make it rhyme (laughs) (laughs) but but you know what I mean so like for me that set felt relevant you know it wasn't just like Oh, I have luxury items. Check it. Check it out. I have like a ten thousand. Sure. And even then, day. like it's funny. I think the idea of some like multimillionaire or billionaire having like their childhood like blankie or something, you know, like along with. I've painted multiple people's blankies that they have, and they're like falling apart, and they're all like grimy and nasty. And you would only hold on to that. It's like not even as clean as my dish rack. You would only hang on to that if, it, if you had some sort of personal connection to it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool, man. Uh, what do you have coming up in the future? I know you 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 were just talking about the sh- the show you had in Dubai, which I'm yeah, sure yeah. I'm sure had you been there before? Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been working with uh, the Third Line, which is a gallery out there for okay. about s- over seven years now. Okay, so nice. I've been there like twelve or thirteen times. Oh so wow! I've been there for a bit, yeah. I bet yeah. it's been probably an interesting change to see it grow over the last fifteen years. Yeah. Or- yeah, well, you know, not just because of the buildings, but uh, culturally it's changed a lot too. Because when I first went out there, I got a random email from the dealer, and she was like, I'm starting a gallery here. We're going to be the first contemporary art gallery pretty much in the entire Middle East. Uh, that functions on like a high level, like does art fairs, represents artists, sure. ha- you know, like pays for shipping and handle like it. It wasn't like some like tiny little pop-up operation like it was like a legitimate operation and so they were the first ones but i I didn't even know where dubai was i had to call my parents and ask them hey have you ever heard of a place called dubai (laughs) yeah my parents were like don't go there why do you want to go there it's all sand there's nothing but sand there yeah you know and um so i went out there just because i had a free ticket and i I didn't have much expectations and this gallery pretty much single-handedly like developed the art scene there so when i first went there there was no art scene there was no framers there was no art handlers, no shipping, no art fair, nothing. I mean, there was nothing yeah. relating to the art world at all. And now there's a huge blue chip art fair there. There, There's the Sharjah Biennial, which is a really big art biennial in the next town over. Uh, there's dozens of huge collectors. There's private art museums. It's really changed in seven years yeah that's crazy there's like 20 galleries in the city now all the major auction houses are there so it went from being like nothing it would be like if you and i went to like i don't know nebraska and we're like we're gonna start like a international art scene here and then we actually did it It, it's that amazing did you just set something off did you just set something onto the internet are we gonna open up a, a space in nebraska and start a new art scene i hope so you know or it's like i don't know you know, I mean, the, 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 the magic ingredient in Dubai was that there was a lot of wealthy, highly educated, both Emiratis, like the local people, and foreigners that were living there, right. and they were thirsty for culture. They had music already, they had plays and things like that, and they were missing art. So this gallery kind of like helped start it. So it's been, it's been really interesting. It's amazing. That's right. I'd love to go there sometime. It seems yeah, like it seems almost like a Vegas now, like a Vegas it's in the like desert. A, it's like Vegas minus the gambling. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like everything's like really big and crazy and over the top, luxury, everything. Like they don't even their shit that's like not luxury is super luxury. You know? <laughs> so um if you love shopping, if you love malls, you're gonna love it there. You know, yes. like if you love expensive dinners and stuff like that. It's all about that. So like when I go there, it's fun for me because I'm usually going for a show or something and yeah. I know I a lot of people there, but uh, for vacationing, it's like you got the beach and you got like shopping and dining. I mean, that's it's the desert. I mean, there's nothing there. It's like a, it's it must be like Vegas when it first started. There's like one main strip and there's like 900 skyscrapers along this main strip, and then behind it is like desert. There's nothing. It's, it's insane, pretty incredible. Man. Yeah. So um, where can we uh, send some people to check out your stuff? You, you're on the Facebooks, the Twitters, the interwebs. Yeah, um, yeah you can see my stuff at just amirhfala.com. you got to have the H because there's another Amir Fala that's a graphic designer. Uh, and then same thing, Amir H. Fala on Twitter and on Instagram. and Yeah. Amir, uh, I want to thank you again for taking the time to shoot the shit with us. It was It's good yeah, to no, get to know you, you a little bit more. Yeah, and thanks a lot. I'm psyched to see all your work and get to know you more as an artist and uh, and see where you're uh, where you're headed in the future, man. Thanks. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. Cool. All right. Let's do internet dap. Bam. <laughs> nice. All right. Everyone always clowns on me for that shit. <laughs> but now I feel like I've done it so much that I have to do it. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's all fine. Right, I listen. I listen to like a hundred thousand podcasts every day, so I, I know the routine. Cool. <laughs> all right, brother. Thank you very much, and uh, right, we'll talk to you soon. All right, take All care. Right, All right. That was Amir. Yep. Fala. Amir H. Fala. Yeah. Cool guys. Paintings are fucking rad. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I haven't I seen him in person. Look, do, now I completely look at his paint, paintings differently. Yeah. I didn't think of that before. Yeah, he's got a cool setup. Like he does these like crazy sculptures in people's houses, <laughs> like rearranges all their shit and makes yeah. like this like little environment that's totally different than like a regular environment. It's yeah. It's pretty yeah. rad. They're super psychedelic and weird. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's that. Uh, make sure you go follow Producer Lex at Producer Lex on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I'm at Mike Maxwell Art, and you can follow the podcast at Live Free Podcast. Um, anything else we need to get out there? Not, you feel good? Really, yeah, I feel good about this. Um, I don't have anything specific coming up soon, not till uh, the not till spring. Um, so yeah everybody have a great rest of your week we love you kisses this is